Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Just one guest today, Christina Gerhardt, author of Screening the Red Army Faction, Historical and Cultural Memory from Bloomsbury. She's an associate professor of film and German studies at the University of Hawaii at Manoa and a visiting scholar at the University of California, Berkeley. The Red Army Faction, a.k.a. the Bader meinhof Gang, a more pejorative name, were founded in 1970 as a revolutionary organization that was not troubled by the use of political violence. It emerged out of the worldwide culture of protest in the 1960s against not only a capitalist system at home, but a global system of imperial domination that was being challenged with anti-colonial rebellions. A particularly German angle was that the Nazis were not much more than 20 years gone, and in some senses they never left, because as we'll hear from Tina Gerhardt, West Germany, in contrast with the East, never fully denazified. Nazis were all over government, business, and the police, and it showed in the quality of German democracy. The RAF's career crested in late 1977 with the so-called German autumn. They were big news at the time, and they were a subject of paintings, books, and films. Gerhardt's book is mostly an analysis of the RAF's cultural depictions, but what follows is mostly about the politics of the period in Germany. In the interview, I mentioned how Nazi intelligence got folded into the newborn CIA in the late 1940s. That thread got lost in a productive swerve, but let me fill in that story because it's not widely known. In 1946, the U.S. occupation authorities in West Germany absorbed the former intelligence unit of the Wehrmacht, headed by Reinhard Gehlen. Galen had been responsible for Nazi intelligence on the USSR, which is why Washington deemed him valuable. When it came to the Cold War, what was a little history with the Nazis? In 1956, the Galen organization, as it was known, was turned into the BND, the Federal Intelligence Agency of West Germany, with Galen as its head, a position he maintained until his retirement in that fateful year of 1968. Okay, here's Christina Gerhardt, author of Screening the Red Army Faction from Bloomsbury. Before we talk about the Red Army faction itself, there, there are a couple of aspects of the book, at the beginning of the book, uh, that I think are extremely important uh, for setting the scene. One is, on the German front, how weak denazification was and how pervasive former Nazis were at not only the elite of German society, but throughout the police force even, right? Could you, you talk about the, the inc- incompleteness of that process, but also why it matters? Yeah, the the lack of denazification um, is is a really crucial motor for what I was documenting in this book, Screening the Red Army Faction. So when I started the book and was thinking about the issue of violence or terrorist acts, I immediately realized I had to draw the context of that story back from the years when the RAF existed, which was 1970 to 1998, to what Frederick Jameson has called the long 60s which is the 60s, and then for for Germany, even um, West Germany, even, I would say, the 50s. World War II ends 1945, East and West Germany are established in 1949, and there's a a number of domestic factors I was trying to sketch out for West Germany, aside from international factors that we can talk about. And for West Germany, the lack of denazification was crucial. So West Germany is occupied by the Allied forces, uh, the UK, the US, and France, and they undertake de- ostensibly denazification efforts that are really ratcheted down by the year 1949, when, as I mentioned, West Germany is established. And what you find from 49 onwards is that fully two-thirds of the judges are people who had held positions as judges during the Nazis. Fully two-thirds of high-ranking military officers had been military officers under the Nazis. And those numbers, to me, are just fairly staggering. And in the corporate elite, too. 
in the corporate elite too. No, that's correct. So a number of people um, who are working in businesses um, who would therefore also later become targets, specifically targets of the Red Army faction. Um, I'm thinking of Hans Martin Schleyer, who had been a, a former member of the SS and who was kidnapped as part of the German autumn, which kicked it off on September 5th, um, 1977. You know, these people who were targeted were often targeted not only for reasons of their financial success or, you know, being capitalists, in other words, but also because of their fascistic allegiances in the past. It's not only businesses, it's not only judges, it's not only high-ranking military officers. If you look at the intelligence agency, a recent study that was conducted, I believe, in 2011, um, revealed that Germany's equivalent of the FBI, the BND, had an amazing number of people who had been uh, active during the Nazi era um, continue on in that agency afterwards. So basically, we're talking about um, all three branches of government and business having people who had worked as Nazis. I mean, another example would just be Kiesinger, who was chancellor from 66 to 68. He He had been a Nazi, a chancellor. And then our CIA was, uh, the core of our CIA was founded in part by folding in uh, German Nazi intelligence. Yes, um, had folded in Nazis here at this end. Something that I discovered in conducting research for this book is that there's a book that was published by Josef Foschepath, Überwachtes Deutschland, Surveilled Germany, published just in the last five years, not available in English yet. I wish somebody would translate it and publish it in which he used documents that had never been previously available for anyone to research, federal documents, to reveal a story. And this took place around the same time. You remember when it was discovered that the U.S. Embassy in Berlin, located near the Reichstag, had been spying on conversations that were taking place in the Reichstag? It was around this time that Foschepath published this book. And what he basically revealed in it is that as part of the agreement on the part of the U.S. and the U.K., to turn over sovereignty to West Germany fully. So it was established, like I said, in 49. Full sovereignty was granted in 55. In that interim, there were conversations about a number of things, uh, military forces, intelligence. Part of the precondition for sovereignty was that West Germany monitor internally its, its citizens and residents and turn over that information to the US and the UK. In other words, that information sharing is not a new thing that was discovered when it was discovered that the U.S. Embassy was, was monitoring um, the, the Rice Talk just recently in the last decade, that that is integral to the founding of West Germany. Of course, it was, oh, it was only the bad Stasi that, that did that sort of thing, well, right? Yeah, it's, so there's a number of revisions of narratives there, right? I mean, on the one hand is exactly what you pointed to, um, which is you know part of the arc of, of, of this book is to point out that West Germany, which likes to you know, rest on its laurels and tout itself as having been the d- democratic state, and in East Germany they were spying, was actually complicit in the same kinds of activities. The other thing in terms of pulling out the lens and looking at the international landscape that I wanted to gesture to as well is that West Germany is really a colony of the U.S. in many ways, or a vassal state. And I think coming f- from a Cold War landscape, Um, you know, with East Germany at the other side of the wall and tethered in some ways to the Soviet Union. That's not an entirely surprising narrative. It's an offensive one within West Germany that West Germans don't want to think of themselves as. What in the post-war decades was the impact of that incomplete denazification? Did that matter? 
I think the kinds of uh, positions that I outlined that people held were really important in terms of stultifying, if you will, an actual democracy. And then I think going on that, I was trying to, to also document this uptick, this, this incredible upsurge of democracy with a lowercase d, meaning social movements that predated Germany 68 and the RAF and the reasons for it. And in a lot of ways, what I discovered over the course of my research really showed that West Germany as a democracy failed, democracy with an uppercase D, and West Germany as a lowercase democracy really succeeded. And I'll just point out a couple of things I discovered in my research are four, and they, you know, they connect to the question about this lack of denazification. In 1956, because of the, the Cold War context, the West German state bans the German Communist Party, the DKP, in 1961, the SPD, the Socialist Party of Germany, states explicitly in its Gottesberger program, we are no longer the party representing the workers, and we are a party that is for a free market economy. This is a socialist party, and socialism there you know, meaning something far left of center. So that really demonstrates how far it has slid in terms of its, represent its, its platform and who it's representing. Thirdly, you have in 1964 the establishment of the Nationalist Party of Germany, the NPD, which picks up on the question that you asked um, about the lack of denazification. You actually have in West Germany a right-wing neo-Nazi party established. Although Nazis and their imagery were formally illegal. That's exactly where I was going. Yeah, precisely. So you cannot, um, you cannot own a copy of, say, Hitler's Mein Kampf. You cannot screen Lenny Riefenstahl's Triumph of the Will, aside from in an educative forum, which would mean you have an introduction to the screening, you have a Q&A afterwards, you assign some sections of Mein Kampf, and you introduce them beforehand, you discuss them afterwards. And yet, Germany to this day allows neo-Nazi parties to exist. I find that, frankly, beyond the pale. So that would be the third factor I would uh, list up. And then you have, in 1968, the SPD joins forces with the now-ruling party, the CDU, the Christian Democratic Union, which is right of center. And it just really leaves, if you take a step back and you look at those four things I listed up, you see that workers are not represented, their economic interests are not represented, teachers, professors, people who are working in a variety of public civil servant type offices are not being represented. People's political positions are not represented. So 1955, as I mentioned, when Germany regained, West Germany regained full sovereignty, 70% of the population was against rearmament. In 1957, Chancellor Adenauer decided to rearm and with nuclear weapons. And this is, leads to the Easter March. People take to the, to the streets and do these weekly demonstrations. Um, future RAF co-founders and members, Ulrika Meinhof and Gudrun Enslin, attended these demonstrations with their family members when they were kids. But what you have then is a real social movement that's an incredible display of solidarity amongst a broad range of, of the public in terms of its interests, its demographics, its economic class backgrounds, really joining forces. And that continues as a motor of West Germany's 60s. I'm speaking with Christina Gerhardt, author of Screening the Red Army Faction from Bloomsbury. Okay, the other um, background element is this year we're celebrating, observing the 50th anniversary of 1968. And you, of course, mentioned other couple of other writers who've, who've brought this up, Kristen Ross and Quinn Slobodian. Right? Yep. The international dimension for this is really underestimated when people mm -hmm. talk about the events of 68. What were the influences that uh, you know, you're talking about there? 
So the international dimension, I mean, I read Kristen Ross's May 68 and its Afterlives, in which, just to be succinct about it, she really noted the conspicuous absence in narratives about France's so-called 68 of two figures, workers and colonial militants. And she says that the reason for both of those figures being excised out is because narratives of France's 68 are really reduced to Paris to the Latin Quarter to May of 1968. And what that geographic or spatial and temporal winnowing or homing in on that space and that time does is it erases this incredible uptick of worker strikes that took place nationwide over the entire 60s from view. And it erases from view the demonstrations often also taking place in Paris or the wars being waged in Africa by colonial militants who were trying to liberate from France's colonial powers. So I read that book and I was like, huh, interesting. So what would that question look like when posed for West Germany? And Quinn Slobodian, who's uh, an historian at uh, Wellesley College, wrote a book called Foreign Front, which answers to a large extent that question uh, for West Germany in terms of the internationals. But in the archival research that I did for this book in Germany, I quickly realized there were an incredible number of foreign students, guest workers, asylum seekers, refugees, dissidents, who were living in West Germany and often organizing demonstrations. They were at the forefront. They initiated them. They sought out, say, the SDS to co-organize them. There's an SDS in Germany that is not related to the U.S. SDS. That was the former youth wing of the SPD, right? Exactly, exactly. They split precisely because the SDS, the youth wing of the SPD, as it had been, insisted on making the role of the internationals part of the platform, and the SPD was not willing to go there. So basically, I realized that workers and internationals had systematically been written out of histories of West Germany's 60s. So the book is really, especially in the first chapter, an attempt to undo the whitewashing of the historical narrative. So I'll give you one example of this incredible role of internationals in West Germany's social movements. And I focus mainly on Berlin. In the book, I focus, especially in the first chapter, on the role of people from Algeria, a little bit on people from Angola and the Congo, and then also on the role of people who were dissidents from Iran and from Vietnam who were living in West Germany and organizing. West Germany 68 is often said to have started on June 2nd, 1967, is the date when um, the Shah of Iran, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, and his wife uh, were on an official state visit to West Berlin. They had come to power through the toppling CIA-assisted, I had to use that phrase a lot in the book, they had come to power through the CIA-assisted toppling of the democratically elected uh, head of state Mohammed uh, Mossadegh, who had, among other things, nationalized the oil industry, which was one of the reasons why he was deposed by the U.S. and the U.K. The regime under Pahlavi, who came to visit in 1967, um, the subsequent head of state, was incredibly repressive, and dissidents had been making students in West Germany aware of this repression. So students decided to demonstrate. The demonstration, which, like I said, is the start of uh, West Germany 68, was initiated, and this is totally left out of history books, and just one example of, of this kind of need to rewrite them in terms of the role of internationals. It was initiated by CISNU, um, C-I-S-N-U. It's a dissident group of Iranians. Um, they were active in Berlin and other cities um, throughout Western Europe. Um, as they also had branches, I believe, in the U.S. 
They initiated this this action of the state visit. They approached the SDS. The SDS said, really important, really interesting. We're a little too busy focusing on Vietnam right now. And they were organizing all sorts of very important events, Vietnam Congress, other things. And then CISNU approached them again, and they were like, okay, okay, fine. At that demonstration, a nonviolent student demonstrator by the name of Ben Onizork was fatally shot by a police officer, Carl uh, Heinz Kiros, who was later acquitted. And it was that fatal shooting that politicized and even radicalized many who were active in the student movements. I find that just kind of shocking that West Germany's 68 is known as an SDN's organized event, not a CISNU organized event. Just one example. Quinn Slobodian states that the 61 um, assassination of Yamumba in the Congo and the worldwide um, protests against that assassination that George Katsifikas also talks about in his book on 68 are a much better starting point for narratives about um, the 60s than, say, with all due respect, the 64 free speech movement in Berkeley. Okay, now the Red Army faction itself, probably known to a lot of people as the Bader-Meinhof gang, somewhat disparagingly. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, how was it founded? Uh, by whom? When? The name first. It's called the Bader-Meinhof gang by, mostly by the state or by uh, or the government um, and and by journalists. Um, And the problem with that name is that it names two key figures and they viewed themselves probably incorrectly as a decentralized organization in terms of its members. And gang sounds criminal too. Criminal, exactly, exactly. So Red Army, because they saw themselves as, you know, part of this international allegiance of of leftist armed struggle movements and hence also the faction, right, being just part of this. Um, they were founded in 1970, and the years of 68 to 70 are in West Germany and in West Berlin in particular, like in the U.S., years where there's a lot of shifts in the social movements. So between 68 and 70, you have the disintegration of the SDS, the extra-parliamentary opposition movement, an incredible uptick in violence that happened in the U.S. as well. Jeremy Varon, in his book, Bringing the War Home, which is about the Weather Underground, the Red Army faction, talks about that uptick in violence. I think there's like at least 500 attacks or something in that range that take place in the U.S. Similar thing going on in West Germany, West Berlin, really decentralized attacks, all of which is to say that violence as an approach was being bandied about. And so a couple of um, members, you know, future members of the RAF, um, notably Andreas Bader and Gudrun Enslin, as well as two others who decided not to join the RAF, commit an arson attack on a warehouse, in their words, to bring the burning flames that people in Vietnam are experiencing on a daily basis to West Germany. It's also a protest of consumerism. And then they go underground because they're wanted for this arson attack. They turn themselves back in, they stand trial. And then eventually they duck underground um, and travel to Paris first for a bit. And then they're um, traveling in Italy. And eventually they end up uh, at a training camp in Palestine. And then they return to uh, West Berlin, where Bader is eventually arrested because he has false uh, identification papers and he can't answer the basic questions on them, such as how old is his son, what is his son's name, which is in his identification papers. So they're arrested. Um, Ulrika Meinhof, who is at that point the last name, obviously she's a future member of the RAF, Bader Meinhof, she interviews him ostensibly for a research project. She's a journalist. She's an editor of a publication at the time. And... There ends up being a move to try to spring him that was supposed to not involve uh, any fatalities or injuries 
um, and it does end up injuring uh, one of the guards, and they end up fleeing and going underground. And that's that's you know the shortest version I can do in 1970 of their founding. I think the most important events related to the RAF, and the book is really about the first generation, which exists until 1978. The group exists until 1998. I think the most important events related to it that most films and art, which the rest of the book talks about, focuses on are events of the 70s. Two of them would be the May 1972 offensive. Um, During that time, five bombing attacks were carried out in a period of two weeks, two on U.S. military bases. I think if you you listen to the list of them, um, they indicate what, what their political focus was in terms of their attacks. Two on U.S. military bases, one on the... Uh, off on the car of a judge who had signed most of the arrest warrants for the group and two more on on German police stations. After that, the government asks for any tips, any leads that anyone has suspicious in, um, activity in terms of their neighborhood, people moving in next door um, who are acting secretive, anything that they might have as information. And most of the first generation is quickly arrested within the next month. In June, pretty much everyone is arrested. Um, Gudrun Enslin, Ulrika Meinhof, Andreas Bader, others. And these kinds of images form, for example, the basis of, you know, Gerrit Richter's um, October 18th, 1977, series of 15 oil paintings that hangs in MoMA. Like these events are part of those paintings. The other important series of events that have gone down in German history as uh, the German autumn take place in 1977 to 1978. So again, first generation is imprisoned. On September 5th, 1977, Given that the first generation is imprisoned, the second generation, in conjunction with the PFLP, which is an armed struggle group from Palestine, they kidnap, without the PFLP, uh, the the second generation of the RAF uh, kidnaps Hans Martin Schleier and hold him hostage and ask for the release of the first generation. Then Chancellor Schmidt refuses to negotiate with the terrorist demands. He doesn't want to set a precedent whereby these kinds of kidnappings will be used as a bargaining chip. And when that doesn't work, in conjunction with the PFLP, on October 13th, an airplane is hijacked um, with people, mostly West Germans, who are vacationing on one of the Mediterranean islands, um, is hijacked. And after numerous stops on October 18th, 1977, through the coordinated efforts of the, the government in West Germany and also the places where the plane had stopped, the hostages are freed. And the next day, the first the member, four members of the first generation of the RAF are found dead or dying in prison. That's called the German Autumn. The deaths in prison, uh, I remember at the time, very suspicious. Um, you know, shooting oneself in the back of the head seems uh, from some distance seems rather implausible. So, yeah. <laughs> do we really know what happened in that prison? There are varying accounts of what happens that night of October 18, 1977. Some of the key questions are whether or not how it was even possible that a gun was smuggled in, because that was one of the methods, that was a method through which uh, Bader killed himself. Enslin hung herself. There are different accounts of her father was a pastor, and she had apparently um, met with a minister uh, briefly before that in order to have her last words um, with this minister. So there are signs some suggest, in terms of Enslin, that they committed suicide, then there are other people who say, as you had mentioned, there's no way that, that the gun could have gotten in you know, and, and been used in the way that it was used. I mean, that's just somebody from within must have carried out this attack, not a member of the RAF. Uh, there are very different accounts on that issue. 
and the reports continue to be carried out, um, investigations continue to be carried out, reports continue to be published, and I'd say that that's still an open chapter. That was the first part of my interview with Christina Gerhardt, author of Screening the Red Army Faction from Bloomsbury. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. That was some of Haydn's string quartet number 62, second movement, performed by the Kodai Quartet. You may recognize the tune as Das Lied der Deutschen or Deutschland über alles. And now on to part two of my interview with Christina Gerhardt, author of Screening the Red Army Faction from Bloomsbury. A striking thing about this group, uh, that in contrast with many other you know, armed revolutionary organizations, is that there are women prominently in it. How did gender figure into to the RAF? Oftentimes, the fact that by 1980, the Wanted poster had two th- consisted of uh, images, two-thirds of which were women, that's cited as, as sort of the most obvious indication of how the demographics had shifted. There are the infamous images, say, in the Oscar-nominated Bader-Meinhof complex of a, a lot of machismo, you know, so in terms of how does gender uh, factor into it, there is a lot of machismo undeniably around Bader, you know, in terms of everything I've read, that seems to be a consistent um, part of the narrative. Having said that, even with that being, in my estimation, a correct image of the early days of the RAF, there does seem to be a shift in the constitution of its members at some point. And then even with Bader's machismo, um, I would say that, you know, Enslin and Meinhof's um, work to draft, say, texts um, uh, should not be overlooked in terms of their role in the group for the first generation. And in the second generation, there's there's a number of women who are really in, in some of the lead positions, Brigitte Meinhof, uh, Monhaupt um, being key among them. So I think gender is a key issue. I also find the narratives around gender that the scholarship ends up generating or the journalism of the time is somewhat bizarre in that there are there are articles written, there was scholarship that was carried out that really chastised Meinhof and Enslin or said that they weren't true women, whatever that might mean, because they were both mothers and had given up their Meinhof, her twins, and in the case of Enslin, her son, um, in order to pursue armed struggle and, and be part of the RAF. That's not Kinderkuche Kirche. No, exactly, exactly. Um, and so there is this kind of latent narrative that women must be peaceful, that this flies in the face of the 70s burgeoning feminist movement, right? 
And that, you know, I find is a is a very tricky uh, part of the narrative or just a reductive read of, of you know, w- what women are and a centralizing read of what women are and can be. So that definitely forms part of the scholarship. And there's a number of studies um, that have been written on that topic by Clara Bielby, who's an historian and German studies scholar in the UK, Tricia Meltzer, who's down at Temple University here. So there's been a number of, of great book-length um, articles on that topic. I do talk in one of the chapters, I do talk about taking this this cue from Kristen Ross's work of trying to look for the overlooked parts of this narrative or the motors of the 60s and the 70s and who needs to be returned to the to the narrative. In one chapter, I look at the role of, of the feminist movement in the 1970s and focusing there on a film by Margareta von Trata, Marianne and Julianne, I look at two different parallel stories and the film is based on Gudrun Enslin and her sister, and how one decided to go underground and, and join and pursue armed struggle, and the other decided to work for feminism, co-founding a feminist publication, um, which was based on Emma, it was a paper that was founded at the time, working against the abortion ban, which was a really big issue for a lot of uh, the feminist movement at that time um, in West Germany, as it had been for France just uh, earlier to that. And then, of course, it's the era of the Wages for Housework campaign, right? Oh, that's the film where they start a daycare collective and run out of money and hold up a bank, right? Yes, exactly. Yep, there's there's the film about uh, about that. The the sort of the cooperative brings social reproduction into the story. Yeah, exactly. Very much so. I mean, you know, one can think of the work of of um, Silvia Federici there. You know, just this this issue of or Engels, even for that matter. You know, just the the role of the family and the nuclear family as really providing a structure for the reproduction of of capital. Yeah. Most of your book is about the cultural reception or and uh, retreatment of the Red Army faction. Mm-hmm. Several uh, media. Uh, first of all, the press at the time mm-hmm. uh, was sensational and very anti-RAF, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the Springer Press in particular. Mm-hmm. Who were who the Springer Press and what was their role in all this? So the Springer Press was a key target of the social movements in the 60s. And because of their skewed, I mean, one can use the word yellow journalism here, meaning often just flat-out inaccurate um, coverage of student demonstrations that took place. And, and they had a very large footprint. And... They had an incredible footprint. Yeah, they, I mean, so they ended up, and I had seen these figures, I mean, Jeremy Varon cites them, but what I discovered in the course of my research that I haven't seen written about um, very much in scholarship on the 60s or Springer, to my great surprise, because there's a lot of scholarship on Springer Press, um, and its coverage of the student movements in the 60s. They, so they owned 30% of papers nationwide in West Germany at the time, and they owned 70% of the press in West Berlin. I mean, just an incredible amount of the pers- press. And this was pretty popular, vulgar stuff? Yeah, yep, yeah. Everything from, you know, they had, they had different publications. I want to say they had maybe like between 10 and 15 at the time. And they had, you know, uh, publications that catered more to the working class um, and ones that catered more to the the middle class, the bourgeoisie. But this was not only an issue. So there were, you know, the SDS organized um, anti-Springer press uh, tribunals where they really put them on trial. Like, here's what they said happened. Here's what really happened. And looked at their inaccurate coverage, um, their economic interests. But this wasn't only an issue for the student movements, it was also an issue for the government, which, again, keeping in mind the Nazi era context, really believed that having a press was really um, important for establishing a democracy and keeping a democracy going, having a healthy functioning press. 
they launched two federal investigations, the Gunter and the Mitchell Commission, to investigate this monopoly, believing that it ran counter to, not on, on financial grounds, but, but believing that it ran counter to a democracy and a working democracy. As a result of the federal government's inquiries, in tandem with, of course, you know, the student movements um, organizing, but really, you know, as a result of their findings, Springer Press was forced to sell off a third of its publications. And this is uh, at a time when they were trying to, to branch out into television. They had uh, previously been specifically focused on print publications. And I think the fact that they were looking to branch out more and have this monopoly was part of the motor of this investigation by, by the federal government. The other thing that I find interesting in terms of print media at this time is that there's a shift from, say, the 50s model of what was called consensus journalism, where it was believed that the way to support a democracy, again, West Germany's a fledgling democracy at that time, is to show consensus with the political beliefs being put forward by the government. And that shifted in the 1960s to what gets called Zeitkritische, being critical of, of your contemporaries' political opinions. So that really a democracy, what fosters a democracy is a healthy public sphere that can handle a difference of opinion. And journalists had switched from one to the other. They'd switched from having, you know, famously having tea with Adenauer and other heads of state and learning what their political platforms were and then parroting them back in their articles to actually showing signs of dissent. And this whole notion of the public sphere in the 60s is also, either through the print media, also through films. You know, Alexander Kluge um, and Oscar Nacht had, had written this very important study about the public sphere at that time. It's part of the social movements in West Germany at that time. And then the Springer Press coverage of the Red Army faction was highly sensationalized. Yeah, really sensationalistic. In terms of the coverage that they provided, when I went to the archives, I looked at, again, because I'm trying to bring the international angle, both for the 60s and for the armed struggle groups to the narrative, I was looking at how they were covering the Red Army faction. I was also looking at whether they, in contrast to um, their main competitors, which I would say at the time were Spiegel, the Newsweekly that exists to this day, sort of like, you know, our time or Newsweek. And then uh, Stern was the other one that I was looking at, which is much more of a, a glossy, sensationalistic uh, weekly. So I was looking at their coverage in terms of international movements that were uh, holding demonstrations around the world, international self-liberation, self-determination wars. I was looking at their coverage of what was going on in Africa. You know, this is a time when in the 50s, 30 of Africa's 53 nations, including the island territories, are carrying out self-liberation, self-determination wars, so anti-colonialism is really important. And to my surprise, the coverage of the international movements is healthy in all three papers. It's not registering the connection between what's going on elsewhere in the globe and why that is important to the social movements. And so that's something that I see as lacking in the corporate media. The second chapter of the book also contrasts that kind of coverage with what you could call, you know, leftist ephemeral publications, the kind, you know, Berkeley Barb comes to mind for the U.S. Um, John McMillian wrote this terrific book called Smoking Typewriters about those publications in the U.S. and their role for the 60s social movements. I did a, a good amount of archival research in West Germany about some of these publications and focused on Agit 883, Agit 883, which was West Berlin-based, for a number of reasons. It's where the RAF's uh, founding document was published, 
It's where some of the most interesting discussions about whether or not to use violence and what kind, meaning is it okay to carry out violence against property? Is it okay to carry out violence that may potentially run the risk of taking human lives or injuring people? Um, these kinds of discussions were carried out there, and it's incredible to see the array of political issues that were being discussed in Agatai. The other thing that I think is interesting about it is Holger Mainz, whose image is on the cover of the book, and who was a, a filmmaker, a printmaker. He was also part of the uh, Agit. 883 collective, the print collective, and he became a future member of the Red Army faction. So, you know, I, I focus on the publication for those those kinds of reasons. Yeah, and they're popping up like crazy, right? And they lasted two or three or four exactly. years. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's, it, yeah. It, it's quite a, a parade of them in, in the pages of the book. There's no shortage of them. Yeah. I'm speaking with Christina Gerhardt, author of Screening the Red Army Faction from Bloomsbury. Moving up the brow ladder somewhat, a good deal of the great German cinema of the 70s uh, was about or peripherally about the Red Army faction and related politics. Talk some about that. Yeah, I mean, the new German cinema um, is established. I mean, the date is usually given as 1962. There's a manifesto that a number of directors released. It's called the Oberhausen Manifesto. And they really bemoan the lack of film funding um, in West Germany, the lack of film schools, and ask for changes um, in, in these two, two respects, among others. That does lead to the establishment of three film schools. It does lead to film funding. The noticeable effect of those kinds of changes really take place over the 70s. And New German cinema is dated from this, as I mentioned, 1962, Oberhausen Manifesto to Fassbinder's death in 82. And Reiner Werner Fassbinder's probably one of the more famous directors associated with New German cinema. Others um, would include uh, Werner Herzog, Volker, Volker Schlundorf, Wim Wenders, people who are still active today. And then to a lesser extent, um, Margareta von Tretta um, and Helke Sanders. And I would say one of the most interesting films to look at in terms of how the RAF is depicted in New German cinema is what gets called an omnibus film, that's produced by, uh, co-directed by 11 different directors. And it premieres in 1978, the title Germany in Autumn, and it really documents the events I mentioned earlier um, that uh, take place in 1977. One of the most interesting sequences in that film, and I think a lot of them really kind of uh, have this tenor to them, a lot of the films in the 70s, new German cinema films have this tenor to them, is they really manifest palpably the paranoid uh, atmosphere of the 70s that comes around as a result of uh, the implementation of an incredible surveillance apparatus to ostensibly to crack down on the Red Army faction. There's a great deal of debate whether the Red Army faction was was perfect for the state to have an excuse to set up an incredible surveillance system. It remains in place to this date. Um, There were sophisticated computer systems uh, set up over the course of the 70s. Dragnets, information was fed to try and find people who might be part of the RAF, checking for things like, uh, are people paying their rent or their electricity bill in cash to avoid detection, when at that time that was an uncommon thing to do. There are also loyalty oaths too, right? There were loyalty oaths, yeah. So part of the, exactly, so part of the, the paranoid atmosphere of the 1970s also manifests as a result of, you know, I would say three laws that are really important to take note of. In 1972, there's a law that's passed um, that's that's called the professional ban or the career ban or the the you know 
the, the, the anti-radical decree, and that's uh, a law whereby people who were civil servants are tested for, as you put it, their loyalty to the state. After the Nazi era, the West German constitution had written into it that you cannot take a position that threatens to overthrow the state. And that sentence is really key over the course of the 70s um, in leading to a clampdown on leftists of a wide array of political beliefs. Because communists, for example, believe in something, I mean, of the many different stripes and iterations that there are, believe in something that, long story short, one could argue transcends the state. It's bigger than the notion of a state, right? The allegiances are larger than that. Anarchists believe that a state might not be necessary for organizing political well-being of of peoples. And so you have those two, um, and this is the Cold War era, right? So certainly that part of the Constitution was tested through this law that was passed in 72. The other two um, laws that were passed is that uh, paragraph 129 in 1976, which had existed since the Weimar era, so between 1918 and, and 33 when the Nazis came to power, it was expanded to you. And in the Weimar era, you mentioned gangs at the outset. Like there is a Weimar era gesture in calling them the gang um, that, that gestures back to people who were carrying out violence, leftists who were carrying out violence in the Weimar era. The Weimar era paragraph 129 said you cannot support a criminal gang. It was expanded in 1976 to 129A, which said you can't support domestic terrorism. And it was expanded to 129B in the post 9-11 context at the urging of the US government and cooperation to combat future international terrorist acts to state that you cannot support international terrorism. And then the third law that gets passed um, in 1977 is a law that states that you cannot publish documents that actively support violence against the government. So there's a ton of leftist press that come under incredible scrutiny in, in that year that that's passed for the kinds of political beliefs that they're espousing. In a country that had been completely denazified, the, uh, the echoes are eerie. Right. I mean, if one wonders, you know, what the implications are of what you just mentioned, this lack of denazification and the surveillance state for today, you know, I think it's, it's, it's a good thing to remember that just last month, Beata Shepa, who was one of three of this group called the National Socialist Union, which is a neo-Nazi terrorist, domestic terrorist organization in West Germany, was sentenced for a string of attacks. Her two accomplices had committed suicide um, when they were, thought they were going to be discovered. Between 2000 and 2011, when they were discovered, they, they killed 10 people, eight of them of Turkish heritage, one of Greek heritage and a policewoman. They carried out 14 bank robberies. And they also uh, carried out two bomb attacks. They existed from 2000 to 2011, despite this dragnet being in place, despite the surveillance being in place, without any detection. You know, if your listeners want to read more about this group, do a quick search for uh, Brown Army Faction. Spiegel published an article about them. And one of the things that struck me in reading about them is that all of these structures that were in place to detect the Red Army faction seem to not be used against right-wing domestic terrorism. Even the term of right-wing terrorism isn't in common parlance as much as left-wing terrorism is. And I find that to be a disproportionate use of monitoring and of, of scrutiny leveled against one end of the political spectrum in contrast to the other. 
and a couple of people who destroyed files prior to 2011 that really avoided any kind of detection of them taking place or anything uh, being carried out to, to lead to their arrest were actually working at the state you know, the, the statewide level, not at the national level, and were known right-wing sympathizers. This is where we come right back to your point about the lack of denazification, its legacy. This sounds somewhat like the policing, the selective policing in Portland, Oregon, just the other week, too. No, it comes right back. I mean, we're on the anniversary of, of Charlottesville, right? That just happened yesterday in terms of the, the date of this interview. And then what's happening in, in Portland, you know, there's, there's a terrific documentary documenting hate that was just released by PBS Frontline, about the lack of scrutiny also in this country or intelligence sharing that would have really, like a real failure of intelligence sharing between the federal, state, and local levels of intelligence or of uh, police officers that would have been really helpful in preventing. Because when you carry out any kind of a violent attack where you cross state lines, that's a much higher uh, level of offense. And given that this uh, documenting hate documentary and the related publications have clearly documented that people from, say, Orange County or other parts of the U.S. traveled to Charlottesville to carry out violence, they had the intent, um, and then they did carry it out. And, you know, let's not forget Charlottesville was fatal. The word right-wing terrorism should really be used there. Finally now, uh, 50 years after 68, uh, 40 years after, you know, the peak of the Red Army faction, what does it mean to us? The idea of of, uh, uh, armed revolutionary urban guerrilla force in the U.S. or Germany seems quaint, anachronistic. Mm -hmm. Our notion of political violence has been so shaped by, you know, those guys who flew airplanes into the World Trade Center. Mm -hmm. What should we think about the Red Army faction today? What's the relevance for 2018? I mean, the project for me really started with this wave of films that came out starting in 2000 and then peaking, I would say, with the 2008 um, Badr-Meinhof complex. And one of the things that I noticed as I was watching them and looking for the stories they do and do not tell is, you know, these sort of gratuitous shots of women who are scantily clad in miniskirts, which undoubtedly women were wearing at the time. The quick cross cuts in Badr-Meinhof complex of, of violence and, and it really just being a depiction of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, if you will, fast cars, etc. That's the narrative that I was seeing through the films of the Badr-Meinhof complex. I'm not going to deny that all of that was part of the 60s and part of the Badr-Meinhof complex, but part of what I learned in, in my archival research, interviewing people who were active at the time, is that the international solidarity was a much more important motor and I think a much more threatening motor. And I would say, you know, that that's something that I missed in those narratives that I think remains important to this day, especially at this particular moment. And I know there's a, a great many people, even or especially among the left, who love to roll their eyes when people say international solidarity, the leg- legacy of 68. You know, those two phrases might as well just put a good majority of, of people, you know, especially on the left, um, to sleep. But I think there's a reason why COINTELPRO I looked at at their files on the specific groups that they were clamping down on. And I think there's like five or six that they had major files on at the time. Not surprisingly, the Black Panthers, as everyone knows. The Young Lords, the Puerto Rican rights movement. Ework Quen is is a group that was active at the time on Asian American rights. Uh, The Brown Berets, of course, for Chicano rights. Um, You know, American uh, Indian movement. And the solidarity amongst these groups. It was what the Black Panthers were doing, 
that was important, but it was also the solidarity. And then some basic things about the Black Panthers that I feel are still important to re-emphasize, especially for younger generations who may not have heard that part of the story. They were self-organizing on some very basic levels. You know, the Black Panthers 10-point program um, is one that's easy to find online, really worth revisiting. It's a very basic things, including, say, the breakfast program. Which was for them was both a public service and an organizing technique. No, that's right. That's right. It's both. It's a recruiting, you know, organizing technique. Um, and it's also, yeah, a public service. No one else is doing this for us. But if you think about that today in terms of how much need there is, how many people are in need, it's not a, a question of a lack of resources, as we all know. It's the distribution of those resources. Um, I think there's there's never been a more important time for for getting together, bursting out of our, our bubbles, you know, at home and getting together and actually having conversations and helping one another in very small mutual aid gestures. Um, I used to, you know, I teach uh, a course on fascism propaganda, and I used to have a really hard time teaching the era that led up to it, the Weimar era, because it's one that's so split politically and so violent and had fatal consequences for so many, you know, um, Luxembourg, you know, Liebknecht among them. And I find to, to my great frustration that that era is very easy to teach now because we are in an era that's so bifurcated and so violent. And so I think anything that one can do to sort of foster um, solidarity and reach out um, across any kind of perceived borders um, is really helpful because de facto, I think any issue that one is working to address is tethered to another issue. You know, one can't talk about um, the situation of African Americans in the U.S. right now without talking about economic issues. One can't talk about, you know, there's always some sort of a relationship among different issues. You know, intersectionality is that word that gets bandied about a lot. But I think that precisely should be one of, of the underlying principles of working in a way that shows solidarity. And not just within a nation, but also between, um, you know, nations. And I think that's hard to do just given the situation we live in in the U.S. right now. You know, I feel, feel like people are really not looking in a, in a much broader, more expansive way because the struggle has become so challenging for so many. That was Christina Gerhardt, author of Screening the Red Army Faction, Historical and Cultural Memory from Bloomsbury. She's an associate professor of film and German studies at the University of Hawaii at Manoa and a visiting scholar at the University of California at Berkeley. The book is very expensive, so ask your library to buy a copy. It will be coming out in paperback next year. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of Nico's version of Das Lied der Deutschen, which she used to dedicate in concerts to Andreas Bader. Till next week, bye. <laughs>